This is the second mini-lecture on informal fallacies. Today we will start out talking about uh, fallacies of distraction, the second grouping, distraction using irrelevant information. What these fallacies all have in common is that they try to bring information into the discussion of uh, whether or not to accept the conclusion that is irrelevant information. The first fallacy of irrelevant information is the straw man fallacy. And a straw man fallacy is a fallacy that you commit when you are responding to another person's argument. And what we would usually do here is we would say, this person's argument is blah, blah, blah. But instead of being a faithful representative of the um, opponent's argument, what the straw man fallacy is, is when we represent our opponent's argument as somehow weak or weaker than it needs to be. So for example, if I say those who support gun control are wrong, they believe that no one should have the right to defend themselves in any situation. What I've done in this case is I've taken the position that says um, there should be gun control and I've characterized it not as a position that says there should be gun control for reason one, reason two, reason three, but as being equivalent to the position that you should never defend yourself or never be permitted to defend yourself in any situation. Why is this important? Because clearly there might be cases where a person who would be willing to consider whether or not there are good reasons to have gun control wouldn't be willing to consider uh, the possibility of denying their own right to self-preservation or, or self-defense. Here's another example. Suppose someone is opposing a law that mandates that intelligent design be taught alongside the theory of evolution in a biology class. Here's the straw man. It should be obvious to anyone that what this person really wants is to eliminate religious belief. She wants to destroy one of the basic principles of the Constitution of the United States. Pay attention to what just happened there. Instead of talking about the suitability of the law, the person is going to um, the opponent's motives and attributing a motive that they may or may not have. In fact, it's an entirely commonplace position to say that one shouldn't teach a, an arguably religious topic like intelligent design theory in a biology class because one wants to protect the integrity of the religious part of the equation. In other words, they might respect religion more than they um, are given credit for. The second fallacy that we want to talk about is what's sometimes called the red herring fallacy. And then there's a closely related one called missing the point. These are two closely related fallacies. And basically it works like this. In the red herring fallacy, what you do is you draw attention to something strange as if it were a relevant um, premise. In the case of missing the point, what you do is you draw the wrong conclusion in a way where the, the sort of um, the conclusion itself is so attention demanding that it confuses the listener about the suitability of the relationship between premise and conclusion. Let's look at some examples. Suppose someone makes this argument. The death penalty is the only way to punish criminals. Why? Because the justice system in this country has gone straight to hell. What with murderers and rapists and robbers getting off scot-free, things have got to change. 
while the prevalence of crime is a very interesting and compelling subject, the, com- the prevalence of crime by itself does not constitute a reason to adopt or fail to adopt one sort of strategy like uh, the death penalty. The more uh, emphatic the emotional or fear-based appeal, the more likely you are to accept the conclusion that you should accept the death penalty or adopt the death penalty. But, for example, we might ask, why not just simply have life imprisonment for every crime? Doesn't that conclusion follow with uh, equal veracity from the concerns about the prevalence of crime? If at all? Here's another example. Suppose someone says... TV is turning America into an illiterate society. Now, here's the diversion. How can we criticize the very medium that is the envy of countries all over the world? The entertainment quality and variety of TV programs today is greater than ever before, not to mention the enormous number of cable options available to members of the viewing audience. So, rather than engage with the question about whether or not watching TV causes people to read less... We are instead invited to consider the wide variety of programs that are available to us on TV. Okay, the next slide has another example, but let's move on to missing the point. Here's the example. Back in colonial times, before the revolution, there were fewer distractions. Most families worked hard and had dinner together every night. The modern world has many distractions too. So, we need to return to a simpler form of life. We should become a British colony again. While on the one hand, there are many pieces of information here that function as premises, do any of them actually endorse the requirement that we accept the conclusion that we should become a British colony again? The evidence is consistent with that conclusion, but doesn't in any way actually support that conclusion. And that's why we've missed the point. Here's another example. I read that it can take years to find the black boxes that contain crucial flight information regarding airplane crashes and sometimes they are never even found. Given this, all air travel should be suspended. Again, there's lots of information here, some of which is actually related to the safety of flying. But does any of the information actually support the conclusion that we should give up air travel altogether? No. Let's turn now to the actual ad hominem argument. An ad hominem argument is literally an argument against a person. That's what the name means. Ad hominem arguments come in a couple of very common varieties. The ad hominem abusive is an argument where you're arguing against a person, and what you're doing is you're saying, the person making the argument I'm opposed to is a bad person, and here's why they're a bad person. And the abusive form is simply an attack. Here's an example. Senator Bernie Sanders says that we should spend more state revenue on education because doing so would result in a more productive workforce. But Sanders is a bleeding heart liberal Yankee from Vermont. So you know that his opinion is worthless. So there are actually two elements here. There's an element about what the argument is, and then there's an element about who made the argument. So if you ask yourself, Should we invest more money in education? You might be interested in whether or not there's any actual economic data that shows that having more funding to education actually produces a more productive workforce. 
But instead of pointing us in the direction of that information, we're asked to consider the source of the information, in this case, Bernie Sanders. And the attack is that he's a bleeding heart liberal Yankee from Vermont. And then the subsidiary conclusion we're supposed to draw is that this disqualifies the argument about whether or not investing more money in education is actually a good thing or a bad thing for the economy. The second type of ad hominem argument is what's known as the ad hominem circumstantial. And this is where the thing that gets attacked is not a characteristic of the person making the argument, um, but rather something about their circumstances. Remember to keep the distinction in mind here between the person making the argument and the argument itself. Here's the example. Senator Hilltop thinks that my administration's tax proposals are bad for the country, but his political party lost the last election. Members of the losing party are always jealous of the winning party. Here, there is an argument about whether or not the tax proposals are good or bad, but instead of talking about the, the pros and cons of the tax proposal, what the speaker here is doing is talking about the person making the argument. And the the attack is not on Senator Hilltop's character or anything like that, but simply upon the accident of their party affiliation and the fact that their party lost the last election. If this were an acceptable argument, then it would never be the case that someone whose party had lost the previous election would have anything interesting to say about anything. Here's a second example. Barnard says that we should spend more state revenue on education. But Barnard is a professor who wants a better salary, so you know that his opinion should be ignored. Now, this one's a little trickier because clearly it's reasonable to talk about a bias here. But it's also reasonable to say that people in certain professions might actually have more insight into whether or not, say, salaries are acceptable or unacceptable or unacceptably high or unacceptably low. It takes a little bit of a judgment call here to talk about whether or not the position that people um, have when they're in a potentially biased situation actually is a fair piece of information. So, for example, if I were to say that I want more funding for education because it would benefit me, clearly I'm evidencing my bias. But if I say that we should have more revenue for education because, and then give a list of reasons, then that would be an entirely different thing altogether. But merely to point out that I'm in a position that might be biased by itself isn't actually a demonstration that I am biased. An interesting related type of argument is known as poisoning the well. And poisoning the well is where before you listen to a person make an argument, what you do is you undermine their credibility. And there's this long passage um, that says, before you read her article, quote, stop all wars. And what you have there is a series of supposedly disqualifying things about the author. And so when you have situations like that, where you point to people's past actions as a way of coloring the, um, the audience um, before they even get a chance to receive the argument itself, that's known as poisoning the well. The final fallacy I want to talk about uh, right now is known as the tukokwe, which literally means you too or back at you. It's a, it's, a, it's a fallacy that points to a certain kind of hypocrisy. And it's an ad hominem fallacy that says, I'm not going to listen to you because you, in some sense, um, are, are self-disqualifying or hypocritical. So here are a couple of examples. Mom, you claim that smoking is bad for you, but you smoked when you were young. 
Or in a situation like this, where mom says, hey, don't drive so fast. And the kid says, like, you never got a speeding ticket, mom. In each of these cases, and in similar cases, such as the example about joining a gang in the uh, first slide on Tukokwe, um, you have cases where the person making an argument is advancing a position. And rather than engaging with the argument and the, the reasons for or against something um, directly, all the person does is, in response, is to point out that this other person is also guilty of the same offense. Now, this is an interesting choice of a response, in part because who is best positioned to be in a position to be able to give advice about whether or not something is good or bad for us, or whether or not a choice is a is a useful choice or not. And ultimately, it's often the person who has had the experience and had a bad experience. This raises the issue of whether or not every case of one of these arguments or, or, or what seems like a fallacy is really a fallacy. Here are some conditions where some of these things might not actually be fallacies. So, for example, in an ad hominem situation, if it turns out that the person really does have the character flaws and that those are relevant, then that might actually not be a fallacious reason to accept a, uh, accept or reject an argument, but rather a good reason to accept or reject an argument. Um, here are a couple of other things to think about. Think about the objective credibility of a person, whether or not predictions they have made have, been, have turned out correctly, or whether or not promises that they've made in the past have been kept. If a person has objectively and demonstrable low credibility, that could be a reason to reject arguments that that person has made. Also think about reasons. If a person does not provide reasons, like actual, actual enumeratable reasons to accept or reject a proposition or a conclusion, then that is probably fallacious. But if in the course of making their argument, they actually offer reasons and those reasons are relevant and they aren't fallacious reasons, they aren't um, emotional reasons, psychological reasons, or reasons that involve an attack on the person making the argument, rather they're part of the argument, then those reasons might actually be relevant. Another thing you don't want to disqualify a person for is contradictory beliefs, or what we might simply call changing their minds. You might remember um, sometimes in political situations, people get accused of waffling. Waffling, I take it, is supposed to be changing your mind on a, on a subject. Is waffling always a bad thing? Is changing your mind always a bad thing? If part of the reason why you changed your mind is that you gained new information, new experience, or new insight, or you came to some sort of re uh, realization that you can articulate, changing your mind by itself is not a disqualifying feature.